Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Paula Humphrey. She has quite the interesting topic. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Humphrey did her studies at the University of Toronto in history. As you know, I interview students, scholars, academics, and much more, all in order for them to talk passionately about their topic. And not all topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. This is my podcast. Unfortunately, there were some pretty interesting sound issues. So please bear with me. I think it gets better as you're going. Either that or you get used to it. Isn't it time to jump back into some 18th century history? Today I'm talking with Paula Humphrey, and she has a very different and interesting topic, which I hope you'll join me in trying to wrap your head around it. So thank you so much for being here, Paula. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Hello. It is a total thrill. Thanks, Rosie. It is. It's a privilege. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Thank you. I'd also like to ask you maybe to present your topic so we kind of have an idea of what we're discussing today. Okay. You've kindly invited me to talk about recent work and the project I'm engaged in right now but is aspects of studying uh, a community in London in the years roughly between the establishment of the Bank of England in 1694 and about 1710. So the very start of the 18th century when London was thought to be the biggest urban center in Europe, but it was really the size of a small town. I mean, I live not far from Markham, Ontario, and Markham currently uh, is, you know, a city generally known to people in the province, but it's four times the size of what London was then, um, or approaches that now. London was about the size of Hamilton. So I've been looking at this community of people as it revolves around a particular individual, a servant, a woman, a young woman who did a remarkable thing in that place and time. To that end, I've just written a chapter that's part of a, an edited collection that's coming up in this coming spring, 2020. And the book is on interrogating domesticity and ideas about 18th century domesticity. And my particular role was to contribute a chapter called Staging Fictions of Domestic Privacy in Early 18th Century London Households. And I talk about the ways in which Londoners in that place and that time understood privacy. Um, and it turns out that they understood it very differently from the way we understand it now. And so I, I'm pretty sure that we're going to talk about aspects of that, but it can go in many directions. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. For people who might not know, did you want to place exactly what happened in that time period besides, you know, the start of the Bank of London, for example, you mentioned, but, you know, what else was going on? Sure. London was ascendant within an ascendant England. Um, all kinds of refugees arrived in London from elsewhere on the continent because this was the age of revolutions, right? The, the English glorious revolution had happened 20 years prior and things didn't change as fast then as they do now. I mean, it, it was a very stable culture that way. So the idea of revolution and change and the new and the emergence of individualism were all very live for people. The theater was very live. Um, London was a huge trading hub and it was coming on and eclipsing um, Dutch trading. And that's part of the establishment of the Bank of England that I refer to because 
it changed the culture. Suddenly all of European culture is focused on England and particularly on London. It's the port center and the urban center, and it's the biggest city in Europe. But then we go back to the idea of it's a quarter the size of Markham, it's the size of Hamilton, you know, tiny. So everyone that was there had kind of a, a role to play. And they would have understood that concept if you said to them, what role are you playing here? They would have understood that well. Everyone had a voice and people of all ages and stages and economic and social status interacted, uh, not only out in what we think of as the public sphere, but also within their homes. No one was alone in that place. Um, people lived stacked on top of one another in dwellings that were precarious. Like you could easily poke holes through the plaster to see what your neighbors were doing. Servants did it all the time. And in this place, we have servants and their employers and tradespeople and all bustling together to provide for one another's needs, essentially. That's the grumbling hive that uh, Bernard Mandeville wrote about in the 1710s. So privacy, we come back to privacy. And um, it's a really interesting microcosm to explore the concept of privacy from, because it was starting to be important too. So as you've said, everybody's densely packed. Is this around the time of the Industrial Revolutions? Ah, earlier, earlier. So thank you for cueing me to that, because that's important. I know that when we focus on the past now, we think you know, Victoria's reign was so determinative that we tend to think of when we think about servants in the past, especially with the TV coverage that they get, we think of Victorian servants. This is earlier than that, even. This is 300 years ago. So unlike the later Victorian period, here's what we're looking at. There's no central heatings in homes. There are no corridors yet. Houses are built. Um, conventionally, a London plan is four rooms stacked in blocks of two uh, with a central staircase. Sewer pipes, where they exist, and water pipes are made from elm, led out on the street level, and then brought in as elm pipes. So you can't count on piped water. Um, there are still water carriers and milk cellars in London. There's no street lighting. There's no police force. There are neighborhood watches. And London, it's pre-industrial. So the city is, you know, hangs with this wood smoke all the time and coal smoke because that's what everyone's using for heat. But there are no combustion engines yet. Uh, all transport, you know, wheel-driven and horse-pulled, unless people are walking or riding horseback. Uh, there's no paving. Uh, when you move out of London, you step outside the ring that is, you know, there, there's the central city of London, which even then was becoming the financial hub, Wentz Bank of England. So thought to be a very sophisticated place, but around it, all the light industry, the service industries in a ring that support the interior of the city. And outside that is hinterland, which is why going out of London and coming in right up probably, you know, till several decades after the period I'm looking at, you were taking your chances. You had to go with reliable transportation because highway robbery was a huge secondary industry. This is a, a very live concern. You know, this is also the age when public entertainment is to head up to Tyburn Hill and watch the hangings of the people who were robbing you on the highway out of town. So it's a real frontier and yet it's the epicenter of culture. And France even has given over at this point in some ways. You mentioned that London was very packed and it had a lot of people in it. You also mentioned traveling. So I guess they didn't always stay in London. There was still some mobility there. Hugely itinerant. Thank you again for asking me um, because it helps me put the puzzle pieces into place in a way that's fresh for me. This is great. Hugely itinerant people, all of them. First of all, we have the London season, which is starting to be very important to people of high society. 
And that becomes a growing phenomenon throughout the 18th century. So the season, so-called, is this London social season. And it runs through the winter from November through May. And then in May, all the people that can afford it boot back out of London, leaving their urban rental spaces usually. Some had property. Uh, and they go back to where they live in the warmer months. And for some, that's landed aristocracy. They had big land holdings. Gentry had nice houses out of town. Um, but very much the, the season, like sort of the reverse of everyone in Ontario going to Muskoka in the summer. Everyone went to town in the winter, and this is where you congregated and socialized. And with very much that mix in mind, Muskoka is not a bad actually model. I've never thought of that before, but it's about right in terms of the number of you know leading lights that fly in culturally and make a big splashy impression and the number of service workers that are entailed to make that season go. If you think of that in an urban setting in the cold, it kind of works for the London seasons. So there's a whole constellation of people that move in and out in that annual kind of breathing rhythm. But also even within London, there's a huge influx at this point of young women uh, coming in looking for work because domestic service happens to be the first form of waged labor for women. And in this environment where London is booming, it's a demand uh, market for their labor and they're coming in droves. And they're very mobile within the city because they're always trying to work to advantage. I've done other work, not my most recent stuff, where I've focused on uh, women's experience of service in the metropolis. And it's really striking how they underpinned big movements that we think of as conventionally patriarchal and removed from domestic servants' experience. Uh, for instance, this establishment of the Bank of London, I'm telling you, it would not have happened without the influx of domestic servants, women, that made the reproductive labor possible, that made the constructive labor possible, that created that financial empire. And you can see it all because, again, it's only 600,000 people. It's very visible. So servants are all over the place. Uh, everyone's very mobile with the season. And the other thing that occurs to me, and I'm not sure if you want to go in this direction yet or not, is we should probably talk a bit about the orality of the culture and its non-literate qualities. Because I mentioned that, I know, earlier. That's part of the mix. That's very much in the mix. I definitely want to talk about that, but I actually wanted to maybe place in time the idea of servants, because if we think of servants nowadays, we think, oh, you have to have a lot of money. It's a luxury. It's something that it's not common, let's say, to have a servant. And in those days, it seems like everybody in London, you talk about, you know, the servitude, if you will. Was that a common thing? And if so, was it because life was so difficult? Like you said, no running water, heat and all that. I think you've got it spot on. I think that's exactly right. I was going to talk about a visual image. I'm not sure how helpful that is on an audio podcast. But when you look at pictures that survived into sort of the early 1950s um, or the 20s sometimes, uh, there's a few daguerreotypes from the late 19th century of London houses from this period that were ordinary houses. And what's striking about them is that even though they're placed you know, in urban settings, they're very closely spaced, they're beginning to take on Queen Anne style houses where they're more and contained. And that's starting to happen around this period. But still, mostly what you see look like wattle and daub cottages that look like they belong out in the moors somewhere. The roofs aren't thatched. They're usually terracotta tiles. They're reinforced with metal, but they're labor intensive to maintain. They must constantly be swept. Uh, floorboards don't have layers of insulation in them. What you sweep upstairs falls through the ceiling to below, unless it's plastered. Uh, and plaster is starting to come in because the new building technologies that are ascendant in the first part of the century, pre-industrially still, 
uh, are being made locally in London. So it's easy to get painters to come and plasterers and so on once those techniques are worked out and the transport mechanisms that support them. But in 1700, it's still pretty rough and ready. I have a lot of servants who, who talk about the immense possibilities for spying of all kinds because the infrastructure is crumbly. You know, even the new houses and new developments and what are thought of as the finest squares, not a lot of that construction has come down to the level of London tradespeople and so on. So that's kind of more about infrastructure. In terms of the servants populating them, oh, I guess that's how it feeds in, is that everybody pretty much needs a servant. Um, if you don't have a servant, it's probably because you are yourself a lodger renting a room or a space within a room, because that's common as well, somewhere within the city. And a lot of them are still relying on holdover housing, as I say, from you know the century prior. Easy notwithstanding the new construction going up. So sometimes fancy apartments are stacked on way more squalid ones. Sometimes you have layers of lodgers and one renter on top or third floor of a, a building that has all the rooms to themselves and they're much better appointed. So servants get called on for everything from can you run to the cook shop to uh, the other whole other aspect that we haven't talked about is that people have their shops in their homes. This is truly pre-industrial. People don't leave to go to work somewhere else in a factory. There are no factories. There are artisanal shops and literal manufactories within these same houses because all of the architecture, until you get into big institutional buildings, look like this. Everything is a house. It doesn't matter if it's a home, a formally considered, or a workshop, and very often those are combined. So you get people, tons of tradespeople that run various kinds of services and um, manufacturing outfits out of the bottom floors of their houses and they live upstairs much like living over a store now but even glass in windows is a new thing so servants are required they must help you heat they have to help you clean they have to cook tote carry um, often they do more carrying than cooking because the smaller houses we're talking about often have no kitchen facilities everybody relies on local cook houses or cook shops or uh, people that move about the streets selling what they have produced, pies and so on. That's the idea of the whole the pie seller. Mm -hmm. That covers servants. There are also grand households that have retinues too that come into London with, you know, they've rented a whole substantial house. It's very fancy and they've got 20 people in tow with all their luggage. Like that happens too. And the servants that make that possible go back and forth between them. Uh, there's no upward trajectory with servants that says, I will start from with someone who lives humbly in London as a tradesperson, I'm and I'm moving up to that fancy estate. You could get bounced back and forth between them as a servant, no problem. I guess the tradespeople really relied on the servants. Yes, yes. There is kind of a smushed distinction at this point. It's not at all clear, especially with women, as to who constitutes a servant and who's an apprentice. Those edges bleed all the time. So you do get women who are so-called apprentices but wind up doing domestic service or you get domestic servants that have very specialized skills it goes both ways and it's a completely informal economy in that way you know the blanket descriptor servant for women in this period could cover just about anything because even the idea of having uh, professional designations for women of any kind is brand new i mean even even um Respecting women as midwives in a formal way is new over the last half century. Uh, I should check that, actually. Someone's going to jump on me for that. <laughs> it's probably earlier. But women didn't have professional designations of any kind. But 
what was starting to happen for them in this place and time. And the main reason I'm interested in this, these court records that I look at is actually because this was the moment at which female servants were the, the kind of avatars of wage labor for women. They were the first women to come into the metropolis and say, we want to wage. We want to know what we can count on earning now a year hence. We don't want piecework. We don't want contract labor. And they weren't unionized in a formal way, but the informal community networks that supported that, uh, often based on gossip and the power of gossip, were very strong, I think. And they made the best of it and could because of these permeable structures in London that everybody was moving in and through. So there you have servants and the people who employ them all watching what each other does. Mm -hmm. So that is a very good segue, actually, into the orality that you want to talk about. That might be a helpful launch point because without understanding this aspect of it, it's hard. It's even hard. It's hard for historians too to appreciate the flavor of the place. You know, if you get airdropped back in there, what are you going to experience? And the first thing that you would notice is that there's no technology as we think of technology. There's no electronics, none. So there isn't a postal system yet. Letters certainly can be handwritten and hand delivered, but the key point for our purposes is that they are always and of necessity hand delivered. So that even if you're interacting with your cousin who lives well out of town, you're interacting visually with a person who is bringing their message, albeit secondhand. So all interaction is fundamentally face to face and it's very much weighted in the direction of orality. It's a spoken word culture. The proportion of literate people and the proportion of literate women in particular is a bit of a, a vexed subject. It's hard to know. I mean, the servants that I've looked at, I have a pool of about 200 in total that um, were asked to sign their names to the court documents, the, the depositions that they gave in court of various kinds. And some sign with an X, some sign with their names in a shaky hand or their initials, and some clearly have fine penmanship. But even then you have to go, okay, what writing opportunities are available to you that make you literate beyond the having practiced your signature? And there's no way to know that. So literacy rates are funny things to think about. You might be able to say that as high as, I might get hammered for this one too, 30% of the servants I've looked at show evidence of literacy. Uh, but I put that as a question mark. I don't know. I'd have to explore it further. But what I do know, and this is very clear in the sources, is that everybody very much relied on the spoken word and they were incredibly well spoken by our standards. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the opportunity to revert to, there's plenty of slang, um, but they didn't have the opportunity to revert to the kind of shorthand slang that we're getting comfortable with now with text messages and so on. They couldn't communicate in written blips with one another. And so they had to describe things, not by sending photographs, but by describing scenarios in words. And what I've discovered in researching this community is that the words of supposedly non-literate people were absolutely wonderful, full of depth and layers of meaning that we're starting to abandon and we may be poorer for it. Um, we got to sort of assume that all these people talking to one another and trying to acquire privacy and being out in the public sphere and so on, they placed great value on the things that they themselves saw with their eyes, experientially saw, this is very Kantian, and the things that they put their own hands on and the things that they said to other people. And that gets into kind of a, a tornado mix of you're creating a certain impression. And that impression that they created out in the world, and this is where it takes us in, more into privacy, uh, is 
what I think most people in London in this place and time counted on in order to make their way. London was a stage. London was very much a stage in the way that perhaps some other urban communities in the same place and time may also, I envision the Medici's uh, Italy as being like this too. Uh, the pageantry aspect of it, it comes to mind. But I think it would be useful to see if the if what I'm sort of about to describe to you obtained in other places and times and to test it as a model. Because what I think I see is that people of means, just like the servants who worked for them and the tradespeople who supplied them with their requirements, their needs, their provisions, were all equally trying to present a version of privacy that served them well in the urban context that was London. And that self-presentation was critical to making your way forward in a productive way. Um, but it was also something people were very anxious about. And what we think of when they went home in London, when they returned home, they never had uh, available to them because of what we talked about with infrastructure and the support required from other people. No one was ever for very long able to close the door and say, oh, I'm home now. I can take off that outer shell, that carapace, and just be myself they're starting to figure out what it means to be themselves. Um, and they're doing it at this point in time in what seems to us to be a very public way, I think, because they didn't have those closed doors available to them in a reliable way. So the privacy was definitely not in the house, as you've mentioned, because of servants and other families or possibly renters next to you or renters with you. Absolutely. And it goes further than that. And at this point, it might be useful for me to introduce the main character in this particular play, who's a woman named Phoebe Harrison. Absolutely. Okay. She came to London and as a servant when she was 20 in uh, the 1690s, early 1690s, and got involved in uh, an intimate relationship with a man named Louis Anthony de Maurice, who was 35 at the time. And she had a child with him. And they were not married, but it really, I was going to say served her needs, but it was more urgent than that. It was absolutely crucial in the period after she had her baby until this kid was 10 years old to be able to provide for him. And the way that she did that without, in the 18th century expression, falling on the parish, uh, was to construct a story about herself and her life that linked her to Maurice in a way that made it... Um, seemed to everyone in the community around her that she was in fact married to him, that she was a woman of means and property. And he was forever, you know, sort of out and about in the world doing what he did, but he would drop in. And she would amplify those occasions of his providing her, their child, with what they needed uh, into an entire narrative about her life circumstances. And she did this for a period of about 10 years until finally, uh, Maurice, it seems, got tired of it. And because Phoebe Harrison, the mother of his child, was getting more and more insistent about his proper role in their life and what he should be providing, he wanted to cut it off and figured that it was starting to become publicly known that they'd had this long-term liaison. So he brought a court suit to bear before the London Court of Arches, which uh, this is a whole other discussion, but church courts in 1700 in England are very important. They took on all of the offenses that now we see in civil court and more, and certainly in family court. Anything that could be remotely construed to have something to do with marriage, and then it bled over into property rights, of course, would be decided in the church courts. And so Maurice bringing this suit to bear uh, in the London Court of Arches was the Archbishop's Court of Appeal. 
he had already tried to present it lower down the chain at the consistory court. It made its way to the appeal court. Uh, and the suit that he was bringing to bear was jactitation of marriage. Um, he was insisting or prosecuting Harrison to say that, no, in fact, they weren't married. She was alleging that they were, and she countersued. And that's why it made its way to the Court of Arches to be adjudicated. And this is extraordinary because servants don't typically have the wherewithal to bring these kind of suits to bear in that arena. I mean, the, the people that had Court of Arches suits were tended to be... Um, people of big names, aristocracy very typically that had huge estates and fortunes to settle and there'd be heirs fighting over them and questions of divorce, which wasn't ever really divorce. It was just separation. Formal divorce as we know it wasn't available then. So marriage is a very big deal in terms of property holding. Uh, but again, London, 1700, tiny place, real rickety by our standards, and they don't have a reliable system of reporting who's married to who and who goes where. It's really easy to get a, a paper marriage that looks legit and falsify the records and have no one be the wiser. I mean, when people go out of London through that hinterland out to the back of beyond, as Londoners thought of it, they disappear. Like it's easy to go away for years or decades and then reappear in the urban center and no one's the wiser. They will believe your story about where you've been. There is absolutely no way to track it. So privacy again, and privacy in a domestic setting. And so what I wrote the chapter about is maybe now what, I can explain if given all of this context, if that's helpful, or do you want to talk about something else? Well, I actually had a funny question. This is prior to registers. They didn't keep any registers for marriage, birth, and all that? Yes. I Thank you for clarifying. That's super important. Um, yes, birth and death uh, are recorded in parish registers, as you're indicating, and for a long way back. And in fact, that's an absolutely key, key research source for historians, for a very long time, generations of historians have relied on that, especially in English history, as the backbone of historical study, because that's, you know, the sense, what we think of now as the census data, although it was before, uh, weren't reliable census, censuses, is that, the, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> in, in, uh, in 17th century London. There were the parish rolls, and there was uh, that was a census of a kind, but again, because of mobility and because of duplication of names and because you know, as you know, uh, yourself as a researcher, all of this is written out longhand mm -hmm. uh, and pages go missing and, and documents are destroyed over time. Preservation of records wasn't something they were thinking about in a kind of museum way at that point, right? So it was haphazard. Um, so yes, you're quite right. So it was easy to construct the stories, yeah. No, you're very easy. And so much relied on community reputation. And that was clear to me you know, from the outset doing this work, the community reputation was the dominant safety factor in everyone's mind because they were de facto so exposed. And then what it moved to, um, it was being invited to write this chapter that made me focus on it and forced me to articulate what it was I meant. And what I was thinking about was that most specifically, London servants used, as other people in London did, not just servants, everybody in London is using their domestic space to present a story about themselves because they know inevitably that others are going to scrutinize that story. So they literally use their habitations, which is a common phrase, or their dwellings, um, because they typically don't have houses or even apartments. They just have habitations. They have like spots. Um, those are stages. And everyone is very self-conscious about and aware, literally aware of that fact that they are staging their lives as uh, drama is staged just over the way at the theater. Because the theater is very much how Londoners explain themselves to themselves. 
uh, both political, social commentary, high society stuff, the so-called low plays, comedies, all of it. They use the theater in the way we use billboards now to reflect themselves back to themselves. And this was post-Shakespeare, right, for anybody who's not sure? <laughs> yes, but it's very much like Shakespeare still. They're still walking those same wooden boards, literally. The London theater is becoming a big deal in 1700 for women because women are suddenly liberated to be actresses. Uh, Hogarth, a lot of uh, Hogarth's prints from the 1720s through the 1740s are, you know, actresses strolling in a barn. I think of that particular title and, you know, the London stage and all the masks and so on. Now I guess we can move along. We were at the privacy cusp, if you will, of the last, when I cut you off a little bit, sorry. No, not at all. No. If you want to kind of continue on that line. <laughs> sure. I'm thrilled to be able to riff away on this. This is this is wonderful. Thank you. Because it helps me to get the peer feedback. Huge. I mean, aside from the delight of doing this podcast, it's great to see what, you know, the reception of this is. It's not out yet. I've submitted my last draft and mm-hmm. it's coming. So privacy. All right. So what I started to see was that Londoners of all all groups, all kinds, are using their domiciles as stages. And then I turned back to my records about this little community of people. They wouldn't have thought of themselves as a community. Their only hub is this woman, Phoebe Harrison, and they all knew her. At one point over the decade that elapsed between when she had her baby with Maurice and when the suit was prosecuted 10 years later. The Court of Arches recorder, the fellow who actually took the depositions from all the witnesses, would sit down with whoever the prosecutor of the suit, and in this instance, it was both of them calling witnesses, both Phoebe Harrison and Louis Morris, would sit down with that witness and take them through a series of questions. And the questions are formulaic, but the answers aren't. And this is where you start to see the lovely texture of their spoken language, because they are so round and complete in their answers. And the phrases they use are so singular and colorful that it pops to life in a 3D way on the page. Um, And so we have a whole string of witnesses, deponents, who come forward to talk about how they knew these two people and speculate about whether they're married or not and and what's going on with their lives and whether Harrison is legitimate in her countersuit to get essentially child support from Maurice at a time before there was child support. So that's the beginning of it. And then what did I want to say about that? They come together. She's 20. He's 35. They begin to interact. They move through a series of, again, habitations in London. And the various landlords who house them or who house her in her prior existence as a servant then come forward 10 years later in this court suit. Do we know why they didn't actually get married? Oh, great question. Oh, isn't that interesting? And I've never once thought about it. I've been looking at these records for better than 20 years, and I've never never thought about the why. Isn't that I think because, and this is a flaw in my thinking, it really is. I have glossed straight into the whole patriarchal um, overlay under which these records were written. And I'm now realizing, because you asked me that, I've subscribed to it. I've gone, well, he didn't marry her because really it was a casual liaison that turned into to something more. But she's a smart woman. She had her wits about her. and She never got married at all. Not as far as I know. The odd part about this is that the suit drops off into the void in terms of um, in terms of its outcome. And the reason for that, as far as I know now, though I'm going to go looking in the archives and see if I can find it, uh, is that there was a fire at Lambeth Palace in London where the records were housed during the Second World War. There was a fire and then there was a flood. 
and though that set of records is gone. But it seems here from the way that the suit trends that um, that Harrison doesn't come out on top, and the whole system is completely stacked against her. I mean, as a man of property, uh, I note at one point in this chapter I've just written, for instance, she was being paid twelve pence a week to work in the house where they met as a domestic servant. He was paying twelve pence a night for lodging. So there's that, you know, between them, and yet when you move further into the suit and they become intimate with one another, you have various landlords when they're staying together saying they are clearly close and they clearly rely on one another for support. And they, you know, they make one another laugh. They are clearly passionate about one another. They say awful things to each other. You're not my wife. And if you are, the devil made me do it. You know, I mean, it goes on from there. It gets, it gets really colorful. So the why of it, you know what, that's a really, that's an article worthy question. Thank you. I am, I'm actually humbled by that question. Isn't that striking? I mean, I want to say something, you know, about that. I want to say, look, look at the bias that historians bring to bear on their subject material and how, and the extent to which we have to be aware of it, you know, of just accepting, uh, or at least of teasing apart 21st century view from a view 300 years earlier. I, I have absolutely fallen in with the narrative that they didn't marry because she was far more interested in pursuing the relationship and all that it entailed with him than he was with her. But then I'm not sure that's true. I mean, he did reliably show up for a considerable period of time and he did pay her way, uh, not in all respects, certainly the ones that you can't quantify, the care for their child and so on, were all up to her. And from the looks of it, she did a good job, but they had aspects of the nuclear family going on. He would arrive and their child referred to him as uncle. Um, he made sure she had what she needed and was flexible with her when she said at one later point, look, I've got to get out of London. I'm going to go to Newcastle and be gone. And he said, well, okay, here's 50 pounds. And if you come back, you know, look me up. And then it did in fact continue after that, but she was gone for a period of time. So the, why didn't they get married? I don't know. I think, you know, I think also in the first part of her story, um, she gets tossed out of the house where she meets Maurice uh, Harrison because she goes up to another lodger's chamber uh, and knocks on his door. And then the owner of the house finds her on the far side of that locked door. She herself knocks and Harrison answers. And that gets her tossed because uh, the landlady says to the court recorder in her deposition, she did not like such passages and fearing worse might happen, she let her go. And I remember when I read it, remarking on the word passages, you know, are these passages um, literal? Are they, are they talking about doorways because hallways aren't existing or are these sequent, you know, temporal passages? You were behind a closed door for too long. And see, these are the sorts of questions that start to come up about privacy. But the way that I wound up focusing the new work on Phoebe Harrison is that I started to look closely at what impression she was trying to present to these people in sequence and to consider how that was crucial in moving her forward. Because when you look at it from the perspective of the court suit in 1706, um, it's by definition retrospective. You can see all the maneuvers she used, but when she used them, she wasn't using them with a court suit in mind. She had no idea there'd eventually be a court suit. This is what she did to get by. And so I started to look at some of the things that we now feel fall into the category of material culture studies or museum studies or... Um, you know, things well beyond the textual representations that we usually think of when we historians go to first conventionally. And again, not just because these people weren't literate, it's because it becomes clear in their depositions that they give to the recorder that they're counting on the recorder understanding the nuance they're trying to describe 
when they say we had this furnishing and we had this trunk placed against this wall and Phoebe Harrison had one suit of clothes when she traveled and it was a Lindsay Woolsey gown and this is, and it was, she was mean in habit and this is what it looked like. And then someone else said, well, yes, but she, we saw her dressing in, in what we think are widow's weeds and she seemed to have uh, to be well provisioned. So everything from furniture down to clothing becomes key. Clothing, because again, this is before the Industrial Revolution, um, any fabric that is loomed is, well, they're machine looming now, but they're hand machines. And so clothing is expensive, especially outerwear. It's valuable. Um, if you're a person of ordinary means in London, one of the service economy or a tradesperson, you don't have a closet full of clothes. And the outerwear, um, you know, if you're going to wash it, you create a wash day or someone does on your behalf and you do it. So it happens, you know, outerwear might happen once over a winter. Again, I'm guessing. But, you know, wash day is a big deal for all of your underclothing. So clothes take on a, a weight and a significance that we've forgotten about often. So too with furnishings. Um, when Harrison has her series of lodgings that she sets up with her belongings uh, and her letters, that's very important too, she sets it up in such a way that she creates a private space, but it's a private space within a public space. And it has to be because that's even Maurice point paying for this stuff. This is what he can afford. So you get um, a house with a big room and you have Maurice and Harrison staying together in probably fairly substantial double bed with bed curtains pulled around it. And that bed is set into the landlady's dining room. And in the non-sleeping hours, the bed curtains are pulled back. That bed turns into seats like a, like a shalong or a divan or whatever. And there's a table at the other end of the room. It becomes the dining room. And that's so normal in London houses. And so it's not hard for people to keep tabs on what each other are doing, even if they're people of means. And when you look to the museum studies aspect of this, you start to see stuff like the focus that in the court records, when they're nominally talking about Phoebe Harrison, deponents talk about, they say, well, here was the quality of the bed linen. And, you know, here's the quality specifically of the child bed linen. That's very important to them because that's a litmus the parish uses to see if you can provide your offspring or not, or you're going to become chargeable to the parish. Uh, they examine that. So all is known. And what starts to become clear over the course of this suit is how much Harrison relied on being able to stage these things, sort of strangely, to acquire privacy or what in contemporary parlance they called earnestness. So after I started to look at those aspects, if you want, I can back it out again now and explain how I started to see those resonant in the wider culture of the moment in London. These are themes that are in the discourse, and that's how it comes back to Hogarth. But do you have other avenues you want to pursue? Yeah, no, actually, that was really good. I was thinking when you look at this court case, then it kind of gives you that wider picture of what was going on. So if you do want to kind of fall ahead into that that'd be great too all right so what i was thinking of is two examples and they're strong ones i do talk about this in my, my new chapter so it, it fits what i see going on in you know all that we've just talked about i see it resonant in other artifacts of the period uh both visual and written um and two great examples of it that are contemporary with phoebe harrison's lifetime are daniel defoe's writing and william hogarth's uh imagery so defoe most people know as the writer of Robinson Crusoe, but he was for a time, you know, he's definitely up there in the first novelist's canon, but for a time he had the designation of being the first novelist in English. And I think people now recognize that women 
Afro Ben comes to mind. There are many others. A hundred years before Defoe were writing novels, but nonetheless, that's his place in the canon. So it's interesting that he wrote novels, uh, Robinson Crusoe aside, principally about women and about women's experience. And his two most famous long works, he wrote a lot of didactic shorter works, but he wrote these two novels, uh, although at the time they weren't supposed to be called novels because you're only supposed to write the truth, uh, Maul Flanders and Roxana. And both Maul Flanders and Roxana at various points in their lives are workers' servants. So focusing now more narrowly on Maul Flanders, uh, Defoe's famous servant character, he, uh, he has her talk a lot, a lot about being in jest and in earnest. And he aligns those states of being with whether she is out in the public world or inside a dwelling, keeping in mind that all buildings are dwellings, essentially, in terms of how we think of houses. People don't go to malls, they don't go to stores, they go into, in and out of these same buildings that are structured similarly, no matter what their function is. So you have you know, a binary distinction between out there in the world and nominally in here. But as we've been talking about in here, the idea of domesticity and being at home isn't experienced yet the same way we experience it because that isn't available. So Maul talks about how uh, you've got to be in jest all the time when you're out in the public world. If your jest isn't successful, you're undone. When you come home, you can be earnest. You can be in an earnest state and earnest about your discourse and your intentions. They use words like discourse, I mean, with one another. It sounds very formal to us, but that's part of that, that layered textured language. They like polysyllables, they do. The servants as well when they talk as the reporter preserves it. So this idea of Jess being in jest and in earnest and the way that makes Maul as a servant, it's tricky for her. She has a fraught life because she has to think in those terms all the time. And yet so does everyone she associates with. There's a conversation I talk about in the chapter where Maul is sitting in a kitchen in London in the 1720s, Maul the character, with her fiancé and her prospective mother-in-law. And they have this big debate about the nature of being in jest and being in earnest and who's telling the truth and whether it's safe to reveal who you actually are. So that's going on. And I mentioned Hogarth earlier because the other contemporary idea that's clearly circulating in 1700 and well up into about 1750 is the idea of the masquerade. Um, the masquerade ball in London is high entertainment. They're big public masquerade balls that everyone can go to. But the funny part about them, and it's, this is reproduced in the paintings, the etchings and, and prints of, of William Hogarth in particular, who who chronicled and caricatured London life uh, more towards mid-century. Uh, he really started getting going where Defoe leaves off, but it's still within Phoebe Harrison's lifetime. So these ideas are in play in 1700 and 1710. There are masquerade balls and everybody can go. But when you're there, you're not dressed up in a costume typically. You're just wearing a fancy mask, a domino mask, um, uh, you know, the, those classic ones that just cover your eyes or are held up on a stick and may cover you, you know, full face, but you're holding them up. So obviously, the masquerade conceit is that we're pretending not to know who each other is. Uh, and when the mask is on, there's a mask on. That's the jest. You may behave in a way that is a fictional self-representation uh, that you're hoping to create to your advantage. And if that works for you, you advance yourself socially, whether it's a public masquerade ball or uh, the mask you put on when you go out of your dwelling to trot down to the milk cellar to buy your milk, or whether you're a fine gentleman and you a jeweler, as Maurice was, you know, jeweler to gentleman of the quality, and you step out of your dwelling and you get in a carriage and you ride away.
the just is the same for everybody, and they were all talking about it. If we return to the idea that Defoe, writing what people used to think was the first novel, and the first novels about women, this is his preoccupation. Who are we as individuals? Are we emerging here as creatures that can have our own? He didn't even think to use the word private, particularly. Private interests with privacy, even the word privacy had a different connotation. Privacy, comfort, and ease were connected with privacy. Um, physical comfort, not so much. It's more like psychological comfort. And so Defoe talking about privacy, he was anxious about it. Hogarth's imagery, when he and he uses it as a metaphor too, is all about the mask, the social mask, and what's really going on underneath. And I think when we, and you sort of have to read the chapter to get this, I guess, but when we start to look at what people's houses were in London in that place and time, wow, does it ever start to stand out that they look like stages? And when you start to think about what it means when people talk about what's important to them, I think we need to be kind of clued in now that when we start to read records or, or look at visual records or artifacts from that period, and perhaps especially when we get records of people talking about their furniture, talking about their dwellings, talking about what they owned, we need to pay a lot of attention to that, maybe more than we have in the past, because what we tend to forget is for these people, not only are these items not disposable, but they're trying to create a really solid presence in a very kind of mutable space. I was going to say ephemeral. It's not. It's very changeable, very mutable space, very uh, very stage-like. So that's where I go with that. It's so interesting. It almost makes me think of people are creating stories for themselves. All of them, all the time, and starting to talk about it. And hey, you just twigged me again. Maybe that's where the novel comes from, fundamentally, is people start to feel liberated to tell stories about themselves. And clearly women are telling the stories too, because Phoebe Harrison's doing it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You talked about the court cases and what you followed. So how deep did you have to go into different court cases to get information on the privacy thinking of the time? Ah, interesting. Because when I did the research, I did it for my dissertation, which turned into a book in 2011 called um, The Experience of Domestic Service for Women in Early Modern London. And so what I was trying to understand was the character of what I'd come to know as this first form of women's wage labor. It's very hard to count because, you know, guilds were mostly open to men. Uh, It's hard to know systematically how many women were doing what. And because I was focused on service and because so many moneyed people had large retinues of servants, I thought, okay, I got turned on to the idea of using the church courts because the servants talk, because they represent themselves. And then it got very quickly into the problem of qualitative versus quantitative evidence. I mean, I wrote this thesis pre-2000. Hey, I hear you laughing. I know, eh? isn't it? A, isn't it something? Um, it's frustrating. I wrote it pre-2000. That I defended in 2000. So that was a point at which everybody was very much in favor of counting things. And what I had in the end from out of two years of research for the church court records, I also used parish records, uh, though they don't have, I can set that aside, but I did use parish records as well. So for the church court material, I went through a hundred years worth of data and it took me two years to do it. Uh, I sat down and read every single case that incorporated servants. So at that point, I wasn't thinking about privacy per se. I was just trying to find out what servants were doing, what their work entailed and what how they understood themselves and the nature of this tricky new thing called wage labor for women. So that's the sample base. It was everything uh, in the Court of Arches had on offer having to do with women who were servants over a hundred year span. And I guess the records I'm using now for this article, or this essay, I should say, were from the middle of that period. I went from uh, 
sort of just after the glorious revolution in the 16, earlier actually, I went from about 1670 to 1750. And the start of the long 18th century was, is a really rich source of records. So I started to focus on Phoebe Harrison because her data is amazing. It's really quite wonderful. What remains, if you're willing to look through, you know, the handwriting, um, and it takes a while to get to get swingy with the paleography. I know that you read Gaelic, so geez. <laughs> um, that's where the material came from. The focus on privacy came from um, two colleagues that have been working for some time to put together the collection that my article goes into. Um, and they are Karen Lipsidge and Stephen Hay. And they asked me if I had thoughts about uh, domesticity. And when I started to think about what domesticity meant for Harrison, I started to investigate the question of privacy because I knew there was something there. And as my editors, uh, Stephen and Karen, were really excellent in pushing me on that to articulate it, to see if I could. And this is the result of that work. Mm -hmm. So we look at their everyday life as much as we can through court records. And as you said, contemporary sources like paintings and novels. How different really was it between, let's say, sort of the Shakespearean era that everybody understands to like the Victorian era that everybody understands? Because it seems to fit into this little bit of a black hole for most people when they understand history. So how different really was it? I mean, you've talked a little bit about the pre-industrial, but was there anything else that was interesting to you? Oh, you're fun to talk to. Yes, such interesting questions. <laughs> Uh, they're great, great cons. My visual on it is much more Shakespearean, and this is French, but Rabelaisian than it is uh, Victorian. I mean, the Victorians are a whole other post-industrial sensibility. I mean, the, even the whole Victorian culture of the angel of the house and everyone that attended on her relied on industrial processes to make it happen. I mean, you don't get starch white linens every day pre-industrial. Not doable. Uh, you have, you know, big, heavy, handheld irons that you, you've got to apply and fold. And wash day is a great emblem for the, the level of work that's required domestically. So it, this is much more, um, you will see images of women in caps, but, you know, the poofy ones with a band around the, the kind of fan around your face a bit. And, you know, the aprons and the rolled up sleeves and the long skirts and uh, layers of clothing that you pile up in the winter. Not the Victorian duster looking cape, sort of with a long sweep, but more just bundles of people moving around in the cold. Well, think of actually, this is a good way in. If you think of uh, Louis XIV close enough in terms of contemporaneous, um, and you think of Marie Antoinette and Marie Antoinette's uh, taste for servant girls, so she dressed up like shepherdesses. There's a lot of imagery around that, around pre revolutionary women's fashion. The servantier end of that is, I think, is what you'd see. It's not what we would think of as modern. Not yet. I would say not yet. Mm -hmm. So the fashion was more practical in a sense? I would say it had to be, yeah. yeah. And also because of the complexity and expense of creating literally what you wear. Like the idea of having a trousseau of clothes for women is a big elite deal. Uh, the idea of women saving not only for a dowry, but putting together a literal trunk of linens is important. When Harrison travels, she talks about uh, traveling with her linens, not her clothes, her linens. You know, just the fact of having them and being able to hold them up and say, see, I'm married to someone fancy. Look what I have in my trunk. It's just fabric. Because, you know, it's as easy to transport fabric that someone locally might make into an article of clothing for you as it was to have the ready-made object because it's all hand-sewn. 
the conservation of resources is still really, really important. Like this is a time when in London, downtown, you have rag sellers and people that will uh, collect nails and unbend them and resell them. You know, everything. What do they do with the rags? Oh, every material thing can be turned to account. They still have spills to wipe up. They still have candle wicks to make. They still have menstruation to deal with. All that stuff, eh? All of it. Rags are really important because fabric is hard to make. And then once you've got it, geez, you better use it till it's gone. Mm -hmm. the, the mending was very important back then. Yeah, yeah. Sewing skills—that's conventionally what women learned from time immemorial. Because you know, I knit. I love to knit. People laugh at it. I saw a T-shirt that I liked that said, "All the knitters died," except not because it's kind of resurgent now. But people think of it as a crafty thing that you do for fun. Jeez, Louise, if you couldn't knit or sew or, or weave, or you know, if your handicraft skills weren't good. Your odds of survival in a place where there's snow go down. They do. Or you've got to have a lot of money to make sure other people are producing that material and handing it to you. This is just sort of off topic, but you might find this interesting. I like the Scottish islands, obviously. And I thought it was really interesting that around like the Jacobite time, so in the 1700s, the men also knew how to knit because they had to knit, you know, fishing nets. They had to mend on the go. Yes, yes. And you know what's interesting? I um. I have a good friend who was a commercial fisherman on trawlers for years. And I, in my other life, when I'm not doing this, I work with horses. And in both instances, big nets have been involved. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've been looking at photographs of my fisherman friend with the giant nets that they had to work with, the trawlers, and all around, they're bigger than he is. And he's holding them up in his fists, and they're heavy. Uh, somebody has to put that together. And yes, there are, you know, manufactories that do it, but in London, Certainly in East End London and down by the wharves, there are whole communities of people making hemp rope, making nets. Yeah, I handle hay nets with horses, not the little ones that you hang in their stalls so they have dinner, but the big, huge ones that go around the thousand pound round bales and heaving those over when they're wet and tying them up tight, you know, so that, you know, giant horses don't shred them makes me think a lot about what was necessary, you know, to get stuff done. So absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I'm starting to conclude, having done this work now, and I'm, I'm going to have to think about this some more because it's a head scratcher, is I think that for the beginning of the 18th century, it kind of blows away the distinction to some extent, not only between public and what is public and private, well, it really blurs the idea of separate spheres, but it also completely blurs uh, the gender distinctions that by the Victorian period are so apparent. They were deeply into that, into taxonomy and categorization and antiquarianism and understanding themselves. Maybe that was the natural outgrowth of this more sort of robust sloppy moment earlier on, pre-Victorian, pre-industrial, when everyone was just beginning nascently to think they had a self. By the Victorian period, they figured that out and were getting very self-aware about the minutiae that went into creating it. And of course, industrial processes would have made that possible. More paper to write your notes down on, you know, more books at the lending libraries because commercial printing presses, on and on and on. It changed people's understanding of who they are, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you said, it's really hard as historians to look back and not, you know, do the presentism where we place ourselves and be with our thoughts and our ideas, because it's a very different world. Presentism is a great word. Thank you for, uh, there's concept number three in the series, quick series. Thank you for reintroducing me to that. I haven't thought of that word for a while, but, but as, you know, the early part of the conversation shows, it's, it's a factor. And one last thing, I guess, London was so densely packed, as you've mentioned, 
like London didn't have necessarily the industrial revolution, but they still had commercialization to some degree where they had, you know, fishing and some kind of mercantilism. How did that affect the people who lived in London? Did they travel a lot to be merchants? Uh, okay. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So at this point, let's see, trade is huge. Trade in London is very important. The Thames is a big access point to the port system and the Atlantic is absolutely crucial as a trading hub. And there's huge competition between London and, say, oh, other trading hubs, Antwerp and Belgium earlier on, the, the Dutch absolutely leading the way in trade. The Atlantic trade is going great guns. So is the Atlantic slave trade, though that's not a feature directly of the work that I'm looking at. You know, it's just it hasn't tapered off yet, not completely. So there is great travel. Everyone is very mobile at this point because it's getting harder and harder to make your way anywhere rural if you don't move into a town or if you don't move into a city, um, principally because landholders have appropriated it. I mean, earlier on, it's after, you know, mid-17th century, it's the government taking over the commons uh, or the church taking over the commons, all the enclosure acts. And then subsequent to that, you get more population density because it's growing and the fragmentation of land holdings into smaller parcels. And then patriarchy is hardcore, that inheritance must go via primogeniture to the, the eldest male, uh, which absolutely fills the English court systems. But it means there are a lot of dislocated elites coming on. Because business interests are so big in England, you have this new class emerging that becomes the middle class over the course of the 18th century, but isn't yet in 1700. It's probably more accurately described as bourgeois people. Um, you have the petty bourgeois, the grand bourgeois, and, and and they have business interests. Some of them are much more substantial than the interests of um, the aristocracy. And they then become the so-called landed gentry. These are the folks that come in for the season, rent their privy space uh, in London proper, and then go back to estates. Many of those estates start to have um, what later become uh, industrial concerns locally, but are still manufacturers at this point. So it's still non-mechanized labor. Or it can be mechanized, but it's human-powered, typically, or animal-powered. So they did have animals in the city of London. I, I think I remember reading how, you know, chickens would live in a house or whatnot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's actually a really brutal culture. Hogarth's art shows that up a lot. It's um, This is the age of cat fights and cock fights and dog fights in public square. And that's pretty indiscriminate. I mean, I think the breeding of small animals for sport, for food, as pets, absolutely. And horses are key. Horses are companion animals. They're means of transport. They are valuable assets. To have a horse, to be able to ride as opposed to walk is a very big deal. I should say, too, that when Phoebe Harrison comes into London initially as a pregnant 20-year-old, she's coming from Epsom, so about 20 miles out of London, and she comes in in December in an open wagon, and she has this Lindsay Woolsey gown on. I think of it as being probably the waterproof equivalent of modern duck. It's water-resistant, but it's not waterproof. And she's got this cloak on and not many layers under it. And she sits on her trunk in an open wagon to cover that 20-mile distance in a snowstorm. And she's pregnant and very pregnant. By the time she gets into town, uh, she's in labor. So it's wild how it goes. That's such a tough people. <laughs> no kidding. Interesting that as a Viking scholar, you'd think that. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you about the hardiness of it. I actually had occasion to spend last winter in a rural place in a not very insulated habitation. And boy, did I ever learn about how people in the 18th century handled winter. Like, super interesting. And, and 
not awful, not awful at all, but different, different to the way we experience it, much more mediated by the elements. And that, of course, changes sociability in all kinds of ways and it changes all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We live on land a little bit and we keep with like a wood fireplace and a pellet stove. The pellet stove is more modern, but the wood fireplace is awesome. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I, you know, I love living on wood heat. I've done it for three winters, not currently, uh, is much my preferred way of going. Oh, you totally understand. I do, yeah. <laughs> it's like that, you know? It requires a much more active maintenance, but it keeps you in touch with certain kinds of things that shape your worldview. I mean, the, the hackneyed way to say it is it keeps you closer to the earth. Well, okay. So if everybody in London, nominally a big sophisticated city, is that close to the earth, what does that say about the way they understand the world they're moving through? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you jumped into the fun fact already. So <laughs> let's go to the next funny question that I usually try to ask. And this, I'm always a little weary asking historians because they tend to have a different view on this. But if you had a time machine, and of course, you're not necessarily changing history, you're coming back safely. And I know it's not possible. <laughs> but if you have a time machine, what would you like to see? Would it be this time period? Or would it be something else? Oh, that's super interesting. Can I, okay, so what immediately comes to mind, this is total stream of consciousness, again, cool, is yes, just for purposes of figuring out whether I'm on the mark or not, it would be great to be airdropped back into Defoe's London. I think I'd navigate it just fine. I don't think I'd have a problem at all. Um, But what I'd specifically like to do there is actually import somebody from the continent. So it wouldn't be Defoe's London, it would have to be later. This doesn't quite work. No, it could be not even Hogarth. It'd have to be pre-revolutionary London, or, but I'm thinking of the French Revolution. Um, forget the first part I said. <laughs> Here's what I would do. Uh, for purposes of fact-checking, yes, uh, the period I'm working on would be cool. The other thing I'd like to do is head to Paris just before the revolution and spend some time in uh, some of the Enlightenment salons, and particularly the salon uh, Voltaire and his fellow writers of the Encyclopedia. Because one of the things that Voltaire and D'Alembert focused on was the training of young horses. And I want to find out what they knew because uh, there's a huge entry in the 18th century encyclopedia in its 22-volume majesty on the training of young horses. And they wrote it. Again, this is a, a time when horses are absolutely crucial. And so the training of them is very important. It's very important that you do it well. And they had centuries at that point of honed experience that we've pushed to the fringes now because horses are no longer necessary in that way. And I think there's fine training principles embedded in there. I want to find them. I saw an exhibition a bunch of years ago of um, Catherine the Great's court, her enlightenment. And it came to the museum downtown, to the Rome. And uh, there were images on the wall, paintings, a series of four of Voltaire training a young horse. And that's what sparked this for me. So I want to I want to write about that next. I want to think about it. I want to know. See what I can find out. Yeah, especially back in the day. I mean, and they're important. Absolutely, horses were vital pre-industrial. Yeah, exactly. I think that's all the questions I had actually after reading your article. I just really enjoy how you how you framed everything, even though technically it's kind of a court case, but you're telling the whole life story through that information that you gathered. So I really appreciate you framing it in such a way for us. Oh, it's what we have available to us, right? You sift through it. And well, thank you for pointing out always the potential issue of presentism and of anachronism, you know, super important. I'm looking forward to talking to other people, you you first, uh, because you you are the first person to talk to outside of the people who helped me you know, produce this. 
that I've talked to about how it might all have worked. And I think it's really important to keep those ideas in mind. Absolutely. That we bring bias to bear, especially when you start to handle artifacts. If you can pick something up, a painting or an object or letters or a suit of clothing or a trunk of linen, or you look at a room or read a description of a room, and someone in circa 1700 is emphasizing those things, then you can kind of go, oh, wow, this means something to them that it doesn't mean to me. There's layers in that. And I think it really, it really did shape how they see the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The only other quick thought in my head, which kind of cements it for me, but isn't directly related, but it's ethnographic because we have talked about an ethnographic handling of sources in the past. When I was in college, I had an anthropology teacher who worked with the Cachinawa in Peru. And at that point, they were one of the few tribes remaining, trying to make sure the Cachinawa were in Peru. I'll have to do a fact check on that. I, I think so. Um, when he encountered them, my anthropology prof, in the early 70s, um, initially to do missionary work with his parents, and then he went back as an anthropologist, they were the first quote-unquote white people that they had encountered. The most remarkable thing for him is that it was the early 70s, so he had a Polaroid land camera, you know, the, the first instant photo things where they'd shoot them at the bottom, the, the images, and he'd take pictures of them and give them to them, and they would just see a smear of color. They were completely unable to take their 3D depth perception flatten it to 2D to look at an image and make sense of that image. And yet they all wore really fancy woven baskety type belts that had a big pouch on the front, like a basket equivalent pouch, deep, so like a letter bag, so that you could, you know, it was a canvas. And they'd weave patterns into it that were inscrutable to my prof, but to them told the whole story about a particular event or a history or a day or an association of people. We got to pay attention to, to bring it back out, to what people say are important to them about uh, artifacts, in this instance, domestic artifacts. Mm -hmm. It's been absolutely incredible to be able to understand this a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I'm definitely not an expert, but at least now I can place a little bit what was happening during that time and, you know, hopefully add it when I know around that time. So I really, really appreciate all this information you've given. It's been really, really good. And I want to thank you for coming here too and putting up with my millions of questions as usual. Oh, not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm looking forward to more um, cross-pollination here. I want to ask you about how the Vikings used their horses or ponies or what, the, you know, I'm, I'm super interested. <laughs> Carry on. It's all good. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is absolutely lovely. And, and you're helping me refine this work uh, so that when it goes in for its final version, I mean, I'm just supposed to be checking for things like commas, but... Oh. <laughs> Oh, I might have to do a bit more because you're super valuable for that. Thank you. Well, again, I really thank you. Digital high five. <laughs> Mutual high five. Bye, Paula. Cheers. Wasn't that such an interesting topic? I wasn't quite sure what to expect about privacy in the 18th century. Who knew there was such a fount of information in technical court records? Thank you so much, Paula, for digging into that for us in order to understand the world a little better. The book recommendations today are The Experience of Domestic Service for Women in Early Modern London by Dr. Humphrey. And also, the book coming out this spring would be another great jumping off point called Home is Where the Start Is, Interrogating 18th Century Domesticity. And of course, the book that Dr. Humphrey mentioned was Mall Flanders, by Daniel Defoe. The book recommendations will be in the show notes. Don't forget to catch me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 
at History A. You can also check out the posts on the website, historya.com. And if you have time, it'd be great if you can rate me on iTunes. Apparently it helps the search function. I'm still not quite sure how that works. I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I definitely wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.